Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and John Kahn, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my music heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk 1210. We are full on extraterrestrial radio now. Heard worldwide. Jackson Craft across the way, managing the board. Uh, stream all our local live shows through PowerTalk1210.com. And we thank you for being part of the program today. And without further ado, it is my honor to bring in an originalist, a thrashing monster guitar player who cut his teeth on the bandstand in Southern California after being birthed in Brooklyn, eventually found his way to the Bay Area where he marinated in the musical culture for probably a couple of decades. Uh, he did go back at some point uh, in the early 80s to receive a law degree so he could uh, sustain into the future, but he still continues to play and, sh and woodshed, and uh, it's just an honor to connect with him. Barry the Fish Melton, welcome to the Jake Feinberg. Good. Barry, Barry, Hello. Barry, Barry Melton, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake. How are you? It is so great to connect with you, sir. It's an honor. How are you? I'm just fine. Uh, good. You I'm know, just fine. You know, I wanted to, uh, to, to start off by asking you uh, if you ever cross paths with the, the fiddler Scotty Stoneman. No. Don't know him. I just only ask that because some of your first professional work was at the Ash Grove in Southern California. And yes. I, I just wanted to know uh, uh, some of the some of the bands that you played with at the Ash Grove. Well, I didn't play with bands. I was a folk musician. Um, two of the people who I knew as a kid in the Ash Grove, who are still around and I see from time to time, are uh, Taj Mahal and um, and uh, Lester Chambers of the Chambers Brothers because mm. they were a jug band back in those days. <laughs> uh, played the Ash Grove, and I play with Lester from time to time. 
Uh, he's a dear friend. So I, I see some of my old Astro pals. Um, David Lindley, I know, is around. He's from back in those days, as is um, Ry Cooter. All, all old guys from the Ashgrove era of my youth. Uh, I guess the better question is, I mean, uh, I, I, my understanding of the Ashgrove was that, in, at least in the early '60s, it was a hotbed of bluegrass activity. In your case, it was it was jug band music or folk music. Um, how old were you, and uh, and you were able to just were you getting paid for the gigs that you were playing on, on a nightly basis? Oh, here and there. I mean. I was like 16, 17 years old. Um, and, and you may think of the Ashgrove as bluegrass, but in fact, it, it, it probably today would be called Americana, um, meaning it was bluegrass, it was blues. In fact, the first guys that I met uh, at the Ashgrove were uh, Mance Lipscomb, and Mississippi John Hurt, mm-hmm. uh, Ed Denson, who ultimately became our manager, was road managing Mississippi John Hurt when I first met him down at the Ash Grove. Um, Book of White. I remember uh, uh, Mother Maybell Carter used to play the Ash Grove, and um, I remember she got sick one night, and uh, her son-in-law, Johnny Cash, showed up and played the whole night acoustically. <laughs> um, I mean, it was a... Are you there? I got so excited, I think he hung up his phone. <laughs> we're uh, we're gonna re <laughs> helter skelter here on the Jake Feinberg show. We're uh, we're gonna retrieve Barry Melton. This is a a, a father figure of of folk rock music, <laughs> and um, a guy who uh, was born in Brooklyn but uh, wound up in Los Angeles. And as he was just saying, played with uh, the Chambers Brothers, uh, one of the Chambers Brothers and Taj Mahal when they had a jug band. Um, and uh, and then made his way up to the San Francisco Bay Area, where, in fact, he um, uh, connected with Country Joe in Berkeley. His original intention was to go back to school, um, but then he got caught up in the um, in the folk scene the burgeoning folk scene that was also tied into the uh, political constructs of the time, the political mores of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, we have uh, the Sonic the Sonic Ghosts playing with us, but I think we've retrieved him. Barry the Fish Melton, welcome back, baby. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> we're having technical problems. No, I, I just thought you, got, I thought you got so excited you might have possibly hung up the phone, but, that was, but it's okay. Uh, uh, nope. Um, so... Uh, you were in the midst of talking about uh, cash showed up, uh, but how old were you? Yeah, I mean, oh, I don't know, 15, 16, 17. Right. Um, I mean, you know, I grew up in North Hollywood. It was just over the hill in Hollywood, not real far away. Um, you know, the L.A. folk scene was small. Um, I remember uh, people who... Uh, people might be familiar with today. I remember when the birds were forming, Jim McGuinn and uh, David Crosby, those guys. Absolutely. Uh, um, you know, I'm an L.A. folkie, and that's 
Well, no, I mean, I just I just had an opportunity. Uh, Cross is coming uh, next week next week to the Fox Theater in Tucson, and uh, I interviewed him a couple weeks ago when he was talking about Allen Ginsberg. Uh, coming all night and dancing with his partner on the Sunset Strip when the birds were first starting out. So that scene, that's what you were part of. And um, that, that, but also kind of a, a pure folk music scene before rock music came along. I'm talking about the pre-Birds L.A. folk music scene. And birds then started to play Ciro's. That was a a real attempt at doing electric rock and roll, I guess. Sure. Why don't you talk, can you talk to the audience, especially the non-musicians out there, but uh, when you talk about pure folk scene, what you mean by that? Well, what I mean is definitive folk music. We were, and and really it was kind of two camps, roughly. One was country music, which I suppose you could include bluegrass, but quite frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of bluegrass around back in those days, um, and uh, blues, uh, country blues, guys like Mance Lipscomb, Book of White, um, and then the songsters, Mississippi John Hurt, Reverend Gary Davis, you know, there was a sort of white folk tradition and a black folk tradition. Uh, white folk tradition, Doc Watson played at the Ashgrove a lot, um, and then there were us kids, us baby boomers or whatever we were, that generation of folks who were trying to learn from the older folks. And really, I would divide that group up, although we all crossed over a bit. Um, there were people who were really interested in the um, the white country tradition, yeah. and then there were people who were interested in the African-American blues tradition. Um and it sort of divided up that way in a weird way. I mean, people were either trying to learn one or the other. Um, the blues tradition being a, a more finger-picking oriented uh, exercise, and the and the uh, white tradition being flat pickers. Where did you where did you where did you come in on that? Where did you fall? Uh, I'd say blues mostly, uh, more than white music. But you know, I know that music as a kid, or I mean, grew up with that music. Um, and so I know that tradition, you know, I'm, so it, it, I think it'd be fair to say that I'm an old folk musician. <laughs> and in that sense, yeah. in that sense, I, I know the old white tradition. I know that, you know, I love the Carter family. I love the Stanley brothers. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I have a, and I, and besides I'm a white guy my dad's from Texas and, uh, when we lived in New York, where we were neighbors of uh, Woody Guthrie and his family, so I know, um, you know, I'm I'm a kind of blend of both worlds, I suppose. You are truly a, a hybrid of sorts. I, you know, I, I've, I've interviewed so many cats, Yorma, David Bromberg, guys that like would, or even Bobby Weir. Uh, I mean, Bob, if the Dead were playing in New York, he would drive, go to Queens, and 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 spend time in the Reverend Gary Davis's uh, basement. Uh, playing and it's I guess more to the point I mean the you can differentiate the country white style and the finger picking the blues more blues based uh, uh, style uh, um, of music but what about was it something also about the authenticity of these characters the fact that they didn't have any teeth 
Uh, they might have been blind. <laughs> but on top of that, now don't pick on them for that. I'm not. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is, Richie Havens didn't have teeth, and he was much younger. <laughs> I mean, we can go through all people that don't have teeth, but I was a, you know, my point is that in today's world, you get a singer and she finishes a tune. She says, how does I say, how did I sound? And the engineer said, terrible. We can fix it. Don't worry. Come on up. Okay. Back then they just burned. They burned. They were themselves. There was authenticity. There was truth. And obviously you're, you know, we've talked a little bit about, uh, politics and authenticity in the 21st century but i just wonder seeing those guys originally setting technique aside if you were inspired by the fact that they were accessible and they were authentic people yeah i'll tell you um maybe one of the biggest differences um those folks and the reason why we sought them out was is was in an effort to be authentic ourselves and those people, meeting Gary Davis, meeting uh, Man Slipscomb or Booker White or Mississippi John Hurt, those are people who were truly from the oral tradition because there were no phonograph records when they were coming up. Mm -hmm. So to the extent they learned music, they learned it from other musicians. There was no other way to learn it. Uh, by the time my generation came along, you could actually learn music by artfully dropping the needle on the phonograph record, you know, <laughs> and doing it bar by bar. Right, right. Um, those people were directly from America's great oral tradition, which didn't have lines to screen it. I mean, you know, Jimmy Rogers, the great music, um, recorded with Louis Armstrong and, and really had definitively african-american roots to his music and it was a crossover between that white appalachian tradition and the uh african-american blues tradition so it it, it it wasn't as discreetly separated as we may separate it today no and, and that's why i one of the reasons i do my show is that uh I, I need this perspective at 38 um and i i, I crave it actually you know i mean, i just want to be clear though i mean I don't want to jump too far ahead, but when I listen to some of that early country Joe and the Fish, and by the way, we'll get it, Barry Melton's nickname is the Fish, so that was an early, probably one of the most, I don't know how to say this, uh, refined and and uh, and honed San Francisco bands out of all the ones that are often pegged. But when I listen to your guitar playing, there's a sophisticated quality to it. You, your sequencing of ideas is clearly in order it doesn't sound to me like you were one of these white cats who was like yeah i just want to be a musician i'm going to start i don't even know how to play but i'm just going to pick up my instrument and figure it out i mean did, can you talk a little bit about how you develop there were as there were with other bands from the san francisco sound i mean there are certain bands that had members in them who were not professional musicians when the band started and i just wanted to know how you uh, you know, really developed your own sound and if you felt that when you joined Country Joe that you really thought you were a professional musician at that point? Probably started that with just being Joe playing together. Uh, and the band evolved from our duo. Uh, our first performance as a band in fact was with Alan Greenberg 
at the Life Sciences Building on the University of California at Berkeley. Oh, um, this is unbelievable. We, um, we played with Allen Ginsberg and the Fugs, and we knew we were big time then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was Joe and I and a stand-up uh, acoustic bass player named Richard Saunders. Actually, I think he may have been a gut bucket bass at the time. Uh, but that was the first sort of semi-electric version of Country Joe and the Fish. We didn't get the electric band until really going until 1966, uh, but we performed together in 1965, um, and uh, we were folk musicians. Our first tour was for the SDS in Northwestern colleges. We played uh, Lewis and Clark uh, college up in Oregon. We played uh, uh, Reed College in Portland. We played, you know, the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, you know, we were folkies. Um, and it went from there. And then we put together the electric band. So really, we were not used to being in a band. Folkies played together, certainly, but not in any organized way that you could discern as a rock band back then. And that's true, that's true really of sort of my musical contemporaries. The birds were all folk guys. The, uh, the Jefferson Airplane were folk, folk players. Um, Quicksilver was, um, David Freiberg uh, played in a folk duo before Quicksilver. Um, so, I mean, we were, Mostly from folk music. Cipollina was a was an actual rock guitar player. He was like, you know, played surf music and stuff like mm-hmm. that. No, absolutely. Who? Uh, first of all, can you tell me what an, a gut bucket bass is? A gut bucket bass is a wash tub uh, turned upside down with a O ring in the uh, in the uh, middle of the uh, wash tub, and then uh, sort of usually a. Traditionally, a broom handle, but you know, after a while, people were buying fairly thick wooden towels, and then running a string from that to the top of the wash tub, and as you pulled on it, it got tighter and made a higher note, and as you loosened it, it uh, loosened and made a lower note, and you could actually play. Uh, Fritz Richmond, who played with the uh, Queskin Jug Band, uh, Queskin Jug Band played a gut bucket bass. Unbelievable! Yeah, that, see the gut bucket bass. I, I also um, on that Northwest tour, you didn't happen to cross paths with with Kathy McDonald at that point, did you? No, I. I mean, Kathy was a, but not back then. Right. No, I know she was up in that area, but um, I guess the other the other thing that I needed to to talk to you about um, is is the you mentioned that you played that you played with Ginsburg. Um, but I wanted to know about, um, the, the beat poets and writers that you really got off on. And if in fact they inspired you to be an individualist in your playing, because I've actually, you know, I've connected with, with guys from the, the, the rock movement or the, whatever you want to call it from the late sixties. But in fact, many of those cats were completely inspired by the poets and the, and the guys who were we're cranking out prose. Uh, and I look at it now, I look at the time that we're in now and it's, um, a pretty vapid time when it comes to a substantial, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of, pr- uh, that kind of stuff. 
Um, and I wanted to know from you what if, if any of those guys uh, hooked you and inspired you. Well, absolutely. I don't think there would have been a San Francisco rock music cultural phenomenon had it not been preceded by the beatniks in the 50s. There wouldn't have been a San Francisco of the 60s. There wouldn't have been a counterculture there. The foundation was laid by people like Ferlinghetti and Ginsburg and Kerouac, who were San Franciscans. Um, and Ferlinghetti still, as far as I know, owns the City Lights bookstore in North Beach. Um, so, so, you know, culturally or counterculturally, the two scenes are dependent on each other, and hippies were definitely an outgrowth of beatniks, don't you think? In my research, that I even though I wasn't alive, I, I do feel like that. It, it, to me, I'm trying to figure out, because those cats were not, um, those cats, as far as I know, were not, they might have a jazz band. When I interviewed Marty Ballin a couple months ago, he talked about going into his basement and Lord Buckley was riffing poetry and there was a jazz band behind him. So, I mean, you know, they might have accompanied, they might have had music accompanying with them, like you and Joe, uh, Country Joe in 65, but they weren't musicians themselves. So I'm just trying to find that link to saying, well, what inspired these younger guys to, to put their own individualistic imprint on the music? That's the fusing I'm trying to, I'm trying to put together. Well, a part of what I grew up on, though, was Lord Buckley and beat poets, um, and a counterculture for tra tra tradition. Um, I mean, that's part of the roots of, of who I am culturally. Not necessarily musically, because musically, our, our music, American folk music, and the, the folk music scene of the early 60s and late 50s, which included people who were nominally beatniks, like the Limelighters, right? Mm -hmm. You don't think of the Limelighters as beatniks, but they are. They were part of that scene. They played at the Hungry Eye, uh, which is where Lenny Bruce got busted, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a connection there in uh, folk music and mix and jazz. <laughs> that folk music ultimately becomes a species of jazz. Meaning that what happened is, is what was brought into folk music and what makes San Francisco music unique, and then ultimately all the jam bands of today, is melding that folk tradition with an improvisational sense, right? Right, exactly. So that what you get is, in the end, you get a kind of folk music, country music, bluegrass music, melted with an improvisational sense of music and then you know when you're really there when you can do what jazz musicians do and that is suspend time <laughs> you get to that place which i like to call the zone where there's no more time there's no more structure except as an assumption it's no longer needs to be stated you're in the zone I don't know if I'm making any sense at all. Are you kidding you me? This, this is what this like is a, this, this is what my show. Tell me about one of the early times in your career where where you feel like you got into the zone because that's not an easy place to be. You're talking about the jazz in the jazz sense of improvising off a theme, 
Not really. I am only we're folk musicians doing the same thing. It's it's badass. It's so badass. That's why it worked. Can you talk? Can you talk to the audience about a time early in your career where you can remember getting into that 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 zone of improvisational euphoria? Well, and that's exactly where we began to get with the rock band. I'd say in the middle of 1966. You know, I'm I can't peg a specific date and time but if you mix that together with um legal at the time just so no one is shocked by what i'm saying no uh you mix all that together with psychedelics and little folk music an idea of what jazz is right and mix it with folk music and you have in essence um an improvisational zone in, in, in rock that probably the best exemplar of that preserved in contemporary culture is the Grateful Dead. Right? Yeah, I mean... I or, think... the great, or the Grateful Dead of 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> sort of out there in the zone. Uh, yeah, on a consistent basis. I, you, but uh, going back for a minute, you, 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 we, uh, we, we, you, uh, you, you kind of went off on a riff. Were there... Before you got to Berkeley, uh, were there, uh, you mentioned Ferlinghetti, but were there any specific uh, uh, cats, intellectual cats, that you, you wanted to pinpoint that sort of culturally ins- inspired you from a cultural point of view? Yeah. Um, in fact, I hit the road uh, when I was a kid. I was still in high school. I, um, it was like, it was the summer of, 1964 and I read On the Road by Jack Kerouac and Woody Guthrie's book um, like the same spring and that uh, what was Woody Guthrie's books uh, you go I'll look it up go ahead yeah anyway uh, I read both those books more or less at the same time and then all I wanted to do was hit the road so, you know, I got my guitar and I hit the road. And the first place I came to was Berkeley. We lived, uh, or I mean, I stayed with friends of mine who were both guitar players. They lived above a, a motorcycle shop run by a guy who was um, taking motorcycle parts from Midnight Auto and other places unknown and assembling bikes out of them. You know? <laughs> was, it, was the book a called? Shop, was the called book? a chop shop because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't just boiling peyote on the stove and playing music all day um, and you know we were in a fairly spaced out place uh, uh, playing music and probably forming some part of you know the music that we now know today as uh, you know psychedelic rock or you know something like that um, and going into the zone with our music, but we were folk musicians playing, you know, acoustic guitars. Was that was the book called uh, Bound for Glory? It certainly was. Bound for Glory, nineteen forty-three. Um, though, as far as I know, was Woody Woody wasn't boiling peyote or eating acid, was he? I don't think he was. No, no. Yeah, but you, now, so I want to be because when I, you know. I talked to Dave Getz, guy that I know you've collaborated with uh, uh, over the years, and um, 
Dave and Peter were both in Country Joe and the Fish in 1969. Yeah, no, in the in the in the uh, reconfigured Janice Big Brothers, they joined us. Oh, smoking band and Getz, just one of the humblest guys in the world. But he talked about this place in Berkeley um, or in the in Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area, called the League for Internal Freedom, and that was a place that you could go with a card. Similar today with uh, marijuana, uh, you could go over the card and get uh, government-made uh, pure LSD. And uh, I want—I mean, was it that accept? Was LSD that? Ex- I mean, I know it was free for a minute. Was it that accessible where you could go into these places? And uh, I mean, I talked to Sam Cutler, the the great road manager, and he was talking about it from England's point of view. You just had to go to the universities because all the laboratory, all the chemists, they were being taught to make it. So that's where it was being disseminated from. But, I mean, where did you guys get, not only was the acid pure, I really want to know how it was being disseminated aside. Because you were, it wasn't like you were, you know, some patron of the arts showing up watching the music. You were playing the music. So, I mean, talk a little bit about how the the legal LSD was disseminated into the, into the, into the, into the uh, you know the first LSD I bought was right next. I mean, there was this woman who lived right next to the North Hollywood, California police station, <laughs> and I went over there and bought a bunch of Sandoz acid. I mean, it was like available, and it wasn't illegal. The word was it was, uh, you know, the distribution was limited by the Food and Drug Administration, but there was it, there was no punishment for it. It was totally legal. Um, I don't know where it came from. I wasn't part of the distribution chain. I was part of the consumption chain. <laughs> no, I'm, you know, but, yeah. I mean, was, you know. were you like? I mean, because when I talked to Crosby, he was like, "Well, I just was. I was real tight with with Owsley, so I had endless supply." <laughs> but I mean, like, no, Owsley is much later, right? You know, right. I'm talking. I'm talking about 1963. You know, would you say that it was Southern yeah. California? Would you so so? I mean, you you just happen to connect with a woman. You'd say that private people would just you, you would run into people and they say, you know, you do you want a dose? I got clean acid. Is that how basically how it worked? Yeah. No. I mean, I know a person who lives next to the police station who sells it. And you'd go and buy it. You know, wasn't wasn't very expensive, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't illegal. It was not. It was not illegal. And and no. talking to Barry Melton here, who's just you know cooking already. Uh, on the Jake Feinberg show, but I, I going. You said something so good a few minutes ago about fusing this improvising off a theme in a folk setting. This is prior to plugging in, I guess, but really, yes. really getting loose and in that zone. Can you talk right. talk talk to me and the audience about how LSD freed you up from your own in, internal? restrictions or inhibitions or how how did it help you get to the zone when you're playing let's understand each other we knew what jazz was because culturally jazz was counterculture we knew what it was um and it and 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 jazz if you understand jazz usually jazz standards are really the corniest songs i mean they really are you know absolutely my funny valentine or something you know But by the time you get to the middle of the song, you can't tell what it is necessarily because <laughs> you drop the you drop the 
presumption of structure and you know what you know what you're playing which helps but it doesn't sound anything like the song you begin with you know um the same thing with rock and and you can do that to other kinds of music and that's in essence what what um what the music was driven to because we understood what jazz was it's just that nobody knew how to do that with sort of more traditional folk music um and what you do is is in essence when you're really in the zone the structure exists but it exists in your mind you're no longer tied to it does that make sense uh, to keep going you're rocking man go go <laughs> well, I mean, you know, this is, you know, in a traditional jazz uh, piece, you begin with, I don't know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, you know, and then you play that maybe for uh, a verse or two, and then there's a point where you begin leaving the structure behind, maintaining it in your head and not playing it anymore, playing around it. And so what you're playing has that chord structure or that um, rhythmic structure or melodic structure. But, that, you know, you, you get to the point where the structure is only an assumption. Everybody knows where it is. You keep it in your mind, but you're no longer playing it. You're playing whatever you want, but you're, you're letting the chords change in your head, not with your instruments anymore. No, you're, I mean, I just uh, interviewed John Luke Ponte a few days ago, and this is what he said about, and I want to see if this lines up with you. Most of the themes in jazz were taken off of, this is in the 50s and 60s, most of the themes were taken off of Broadway musicals. They were easy songs to follow in terms of melody. Once the melody right. is once the melody is played, musicians go back to the top of the song and start improvising instead of playing the melody as written. You create new variations and melodies. He was talking exactly. about, and he was talking about what Coltrane, when he first saw Train, he he it blew his mind because Train wasn't playing the the, the note that was self evident. He was playing flurries of notes around that, creating new harmony. Exactly. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But he knew what the structure. He maintained the structure in his head and was playing anything but the structure. <laughs> exactly. And and and, okay. and and that's what that is the most that is what, what I have been even though my wife and my kids look askance at me at times, this is exactly you know why I I do my show is because as a Barry, I just is it fair to say that that zeitgeist uh, was palpable and drove you guys to further creation during that time in the 60s? Because I look at today's society and I say, everything is so compartmentalized, everything is so formulaic, there is no, there, there, and to me the languages of music have been stifled by all this stuff, and I, I, I wanna know if that's an accurate way to look at it, because I was not around when you were doing this stuff. Uh I, I can't agree with you entirely because I got to tell you there are people doing exciting things right now. In fact, if you really want to hear a music that's evolved into a true improvisational zone and, and approaches 
you know, that space, listen to modern bluegrass music, right. which, which has become incredibly abstract uh, over the years and has evolved in a place that you never would have been able to foresee had you been a traditional bluegrass player 30 or 40 years ago. So, so there are musics that are evolving, and to me the results are quite exciting. Um, when I hear people like, uh, um, you know, even even more contemporary, Jerry, um, the Delbro player. Um, Jerry Douglas. Jerry Douglas. I mean, he's doing incredible stuff, you know? I mean, that's... It's really evolved. No, I'm not, and I don't want to make it sound that it's it's there's it's void. I'm just saying the propensity is not as there's not as much of it going on. I mean, to me, it's just the bands that were around that were just and and the touring circuit as well. I mean, I think that that is something to be said of the idea of when you were with Country Joe and the Fish. How responsible do you feel the fact that you had a vibrant touring circuit? to be able to go to different towns, play in some upholstered sewers for two or three weeks at a time, get uh, comfortable with your own individual sound, and develop a fan base. How crucial was that to the longevity of Country Joe and the Fish? Well, you know, I mean, but there was a viable record business back then. Absolutely. And there isn't anymore. In fact, uh, you know, breaking out now without record company backing, with no units to sell, with no big money being spent on production, is much more difficult. I mean, people really have to, I mean, doing music now has become like doing uh, a software or, uh, you know, internet browsers or something. You have to give it away free for four or five years and get people to like it. (laughs) And then hopefully, you know, after you've done that for a while, people like it so much they're willing to pay for it, you know? Absolutely. Like like the paywall at newspapers or something, you know? I mean, you need people to actually want your product, and then, and then you have... Talking to the fish, Barry Melton here. We keep having uh, dropped phone calls. We're going to get him back on the line. Uh, we got Curtis Sonny Folks coming up later in the program at about 1.15. Um, <clears throat> great trombone player in the same vein as Curtis Fuller and those cats. But uh, looking forward to reconnecting with Barry Melton here on Power Talk 1210. Uh, full extraterrestrial radio. Um, Jackson Craft running the board as we try to reclaim the fish Barry Melton um, uh, next week uh, a couple of announcements uh, we got Dave Gruz and the great piano player coming up and uh, also wavy gravy hopefully we will not have these uh, similar uh, phone issues um, who knows on whose end it is um, and uh, so we're um, about ready to clock back in here well, we're. Uh, are we live? Yeah, I'm uh, Barry. I'm sorry. We're just the the spirits are screwing around with us today. So welcome. Yeah, I noticed. Yeah, you're in the you were 
<laughs> you were in the middle of uh, of riffing on something there. Um, but I, you know, did you? Can you talk about the first time that you saw John Coltrane perform live? I didn't see him till later. Unfortunately, I saw him uh, in the uh, in New York. I think it was at the Village Gate or the Village Vanguard, one of those places in the Village, a Village Jazz place. Um, it was pretty exciting. I, you know, what I did get to see in terms of improvisational music that really affected me the most when I was young as mm-hmm. I saw Ravi Shankar playing with Al Yakbar Khan at the World Pacific Studios in Southern California. That is so badass. Um, Richard Bach, was, yeah. What's that? Uh, that was just Richard Bach. He owned that label. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember going to a recording session and someone dragging me in. Another great improvisational tradition, by the way. Classical uh, Indian music. Oh, I mean, I mean, it just, it's, it, it's just the same stuff that, that we were. What was, uh, can you talk about that experience, seeing them and, and how they improvised off each other? I mean, one was playing the... Sitar, the other was playing the Soro. They weren't playing with Alu Raka, were they? Uh, yes, they were. Just um, Yeah, talk about how it opened. Yeah. Alu Raka is another great, and of course I'm good friends with his son, Zakir Hussain. Um, I love Zakir. I did an interview with him about three years ago. He, he's unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but there, there we are. I mean, you know, in a way, growing up in the early 60s and being a musician, and having these improvisational templates in front of us, like Indian music, classical Indian music, um, I've known, um, you know, Indian musicians ever since I was a teenager. Um, and then having jazz musicians out there who were, you know, also improvisational geniuses, um, similar kinds of, uh, improvisational traditions um, it was inevitable that we folk musicians would figure out an improvisational art form that would work for us so I don't I don't think you know sometimes people want to frame it in terms of drugs and I don't think drugs had anything to do with it honestly I think music logically can be explained as some melding of the jazz art form and the Indian classical art form into the American folk music art form. Um, So we're all, all musicians worth of salt are musicologists of a sort too, you know, (laughs) you know where it comes from. Yeah, I just, uh, my my feeling is that uh, you take a band like the Grateful Dead, there's no doubt that, and you were part of this, those, those Bill Graham bonanzas that would have, Tiny Tim, Miles Davis, and the Grateful Dead on a bill, there's no doubt that Garcia was heavily affected by the fact that Miles Davis played with the band. He played in with the band. And you know what I'm trying to say? They, I mean, they communicated. Miles would put himself right there, and that had to have some kind of inspiring uh, leadership effect on those cats. I mean, it's not just the music. It's the leadership. That's one of the L's of my show is just the idea of being – I mean – I talked to Dave Holland a while back, and, and the great bass player, and he just said when Train, when Train first joined Miles, 
he kept going up to Miles on the bandstand saying, what do you want me to play? What do you want me to play? Miles kept turning his back on him. It finally, yeah. it finally dawned on train that he said, oh, yeah, okay, Miles brought me in because he wants me to play what's, what I feel. And it finally dawned on him that's what he wanted to do. Those guys, that's kind of nonverbal communication and leadership. That's an intangible thing. That can't be explained in, in just the music, you know? That's right. Um, and, and you know, where this music... You know, now we have a, a, a tradition, I guess, of, of, like, world music, where people from different disciplines, you know, where Yo-Yo Ma plays with, you know, somebody from the other side of the world. We, we, we've, you know, music is to some sense, fused together regardless of the background or tradition that the musician comes from. Um, and I think that's very exciting. I mean, it's, 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 it, but it's a phenomenon that's only been around for maybe 40 or 50 years. We used to be much more firmly rooted in whatever tradition we grew up in. And this concept of a world music didn't, that's very contemporary, you know, or certainly within my lifetime. Yeah, no, I mean, you just brought up seeing uh, Ravi Shankar, who was discovered by Dick Bach, who was the head of World Pacific Records. And John Luke was telling me this week, I mean, how, how progressive was Dick Bach in the sense that he had already coined the word world music, but yet that term really became fashionable 20 years after. So it's, I mean, right. it, it's it's... Part of it is also that there was these, you know, the, the, some of these places were in complete darkness. I mean, India was still in darkness at this point. And, you know, now we're full interconnection in the era of YouTube. I also wanted to ask you, I know you're, um, you know, a lawyer and, you know, you spend obviously quite a bit of time um, pouring your heart and soul into that. But can you talk a little bit about um, the seed that you and Country Joe planted in 65 and how that, at the time, you, seeds were allowed to germinate and eventually spawn and grow, and the music would grow. Because when I interviewed Zakir on New Year's Eve 2012, uh, he just said the biggest pro one of the biggest issues going on today is that, you know, uh, there, there's no time for these things to take root anymore. You plant a seed, you plant a new seed, then you plant a new seed, then you plant a new seed. There's no time for anything to germinate and cultivate and grow because of the speed and the sort of, you want to call it anxiety or the, uh, that the, I mean, the San Francisco sound, the sound of, of your, of, of Country Joe, it didn't happen overnight. Now things have to happen overnight. And I wanted to get your take on that. Well, part of it is, part of it is, I mean, the reason why we came to San Francisco, the whole idea was, is because it was cheap. Uh, there was space. Um, and you didn't have to be in a hurry. Survival was fairly easy. You know, I used to, I remember I used to run out of money. I'd get a job for a week and then quit the job and I'd have enough money for a month. You right. Know? right, right, right. <laughs> it's like, you know, full appointment, full employment was an assumption, you know, and survival was not an issue. Uh, things were easier in that sense, uh, in the sixties than they are now. Um, and that was before food stamps, man. I mean, you know, I mean, we were really living off the land in a very uh, possible way. Um, and that doesn't exist so much anymore. People are driven to 
throw things together and make money at it with relative rapidity or it won't work. Um, and we, we were almost, and, and I, you asked at some point, you know, about being a professional musician. And I don't think the first country Joe and the fish album is a professional album. I think it's an album of indigenous music from the Bay area in the middle 1960s. It's not really all that professional because we weren't, we didn't worry about supporting ourselves or making money or, you know, that wasn't really, those weren't primary concerns. Our primary concerns were artistic and we didn't need to um, make a lot of money in order to survive. Survival is a much more dodgy proposition now than it was then. Do you feel, so, yeah, no, I mean, I think that uh, maybe you weren't conscious of it at the time, but because of the, the, um, the fact that you were living off the land and, and you were not overwhelmed by the cost of living, you guys were able to drive your spiritual uh, force into actually becoming better musicians, right? You didn't have to worry about putting money on the table. You could go out for a week and, and grab a gig, but you could ultimately really hone your skills and pour your heart in. The focus was on not just technique, but feel. Uh, and yeah, I'm, we were living very marginally. It wasn't our idea to play songs that anyone knew. <laughs> it was our interest in playing stuff that was original and unique, which limited our market. And we weren't worried about marketing all that much. It's just sort of happened organically, you know? Right. Um, which we is... didn't sound like anyone else, that was for sure. No. I... I mean, even even the other rock bands, we didn't sound like anybody, you know? Can you talk? Um, yeah. And occasionally someone would say, oh, we're booking a rock band. We'd show up someplace and they go, what are you people doing? Why don't you play, you know, roll over Beethoven or something, <laughs> you know? And we'd go, hey, man, this is what we do, <laughs> you know? Can you talk? Uh, I think it's really interesting what you just said. I mean, couldn't you speak specifically about one particular track or piece of, of the music that you're referring to when you talk about the indigenous sound of the first album? Yeah, we were we were um, we were people from the Bay Area, and we were interested in playing our own music. And there weren't any defined limits to rock and roll in those days, anyway. I remember when Bruce Barthol left our band, our first bass player. We were looking for a bass player, and there really weren't any bass players around. I mean, we didn't, you know, it was hard to find somebody to come audition to play with the band because being a rock and roll musician wasn't like a profession, you know? Right. It wasn't even an avocation. There weren't <laughs> there weren't any, you know? <laughs> I mean there were people around that could sort of do that, but it wasn't like anything that anybody necessarily knew how to do. I mean it was it was an art form practiced by very few. There weren't it wasn't common, you know? Um Nowadays, if I put out a word for a bass player, you know, we'd have, you know, with a band where people were actually making money, we'd have, you know, the lines would be out the door. We'd have to pre-qualify them or something, you know? Yeah, no, when, um, you, when you said uh, that it was not a, uh, uh, the I was just, when you said that the album was not what you would consider professional, I just was thinking, was it not 
was it like a Charlie Parker kind of thing where there might have been a note flubbed somewhere? It wasn't refined. It wasn't polished. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. I mean, we were we were doing there were no we weren't doing anything that had a definition. I mean, you know, put the album on sometime, play section forty three, and tell me what kind of music that was. Well, I listened to that this morning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right, right, right. I, mean, I don't know where we were coming from. Nobody else did either. You know. And believe me, when we started playing stuff, you know, somebody had hired, they thought they were hiring a rock band and we'd get up there and play that, you know, there were people who got really angry at us. <laughs> I mean, I remember being in, a, in an armory somewhere in the East Bay, you know, we're playing the traditional, you know, one of those places where the thing was is some loud band got on there mm-hmm. and then people in, uh, you know, Plymouth 383s drove around the armory in the parking lot, and then they had the music inside. Um, you know, and they hired us, you know, they thought they were hiring a rock band, and then we get up there and start to play that stuff. And, you know, fist fights would break out, and the promoter would get real mad. You know, it was weird. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a Donald Trump rap. No, I'm kidding. That That's unbelievable. People, people would actually... Uh, because they were pissed off because they thought they they thought they were getting something else. That's why they were. They, they were... thought they were hiring a rock band. I mean, I guess we were a rock band, but you know, we were playing this weird music. But also, were the were the messages bothering people? I I no. I mean, I think you know what you were supposed to do at a rock band gig is you know play stuff that had a backbeat and kept chugging along, and you know. <laughs> People could have fist fights and they wouldn't pay much attention to it. You know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like it is now. You know, it wasn't. First of all, it wasn't even considered music until a couple of three years into my. I mean, you know, rock music wasn't really music, right? It right. was something the kids listened to. Yeah, teenagers you know? was just kind of a new word. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was new. We didn't get like you know. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to remember when I saw my first intellectual rock and roll music review. Nobody reviewed rock and roll. It wasn't music. You know? Wow. It wasn't like, it wasn't taken seriously. Right. You know? It was something that kids did out on the edge of town and got in fistfights over, you know, and drove their cars around the venue real fast, you know? <laughs> I mean, no, I'm with no, you. I'm with you. No, this is I'm fantastic. Serious. I, you know what? You know, but it's so great because, and now we get to this point where we're at with Live Nation and 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 uh, Clear Channel, um, and uh, you know, but uh, you know, Barry, my my show is focused on the on the four L's, and so one of the L's is love, and I wanted you to talk about your concept of love and how you bring love to the world. Oh my God, that's a tough one. Curveball, yeah, curveball. <laughs> I tr- I try, um, you know, um, I'm 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 also a public defender, so part of my uh, commitment is to defend the defenseless uh, and speak truth to power, um, and. I guess I always felt that way as a guitar player too, that it, what I was doing wasn't worth a whole lot 
if I wasn't saying something and if I wasn't speaking out and speaking up. Hmm. Um, and to me, that's strongly linked with love and commitment and honor and doing the right thing, um, both as a musician and as a public defender, because it's not just a job. It's a commitment. It's a way of life. It's it's caring for your fellow human beings. Um, and I feel like I always had that commitment and have that commitment as a human being. Um, the most important gig I can get called for uh, at any particular time is a benefit. I still probably half of what I do every year is I play benefits, you know, sure to help someone in trouble or to play for a cause or a political candidate, like just recently somebody called me yesterday. Um, I mean, that's that's a large amount of what motivates me, and it's what motivates both of my careers, my musical career and my legal career. I've never practiced law for money or to make money. I practice law for people, to help people. Um, I play music for people to help people. Um, and if I make some money, well, that's great, but it's not the driving force in my life. Um, you know, I have bigger things uh, that I do what I do for. Would you say that the, the bigger things encompass lo love? It's more about uh, fighting? Absolutely. Yeah. I do it because I love people, because yeah. I care about people. Yeah. That's, um, no, that's beautiful. And that's why I play music, and that's why I practice law. Um, and one of the things, uh, you know, the reason why I love being in a band um, is because it's a way to communicate with people on a whole other level that's not verbal. Um, so, yeah, that's that's some part of what drives it. Right, and it's um, my show is about trying to get you to express verbally musical language communication which is which can be tedious at at best but that's essentially as a non-musician that's what i try to do because i was going to ask you uh, about uh taking love a step further and, and and love on the bandstand you talk about that feeling inside could you talk about that feeling inside of communication well and some part of it some part of it on the bandstand and and when it works right i mean it doesn't always work right need a lot of elements to come together in a band for the band to really get there. Um, I mean, everybody has to feel good that night. You know, a lot of nights you show up, you feel great. The bass player's feeling marvelous. The keyboard player's really witty and the drummer's sick. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> in, which case, in which case, it's going to be hard to get there that night because the <laughs> drummer has gold, you know? Right, 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 right. Um, it, it requires all the elements to come in order for it to happen is there is there a, like if the drummer's under the weather but everybody else like the three of you are feeling hot can you raise that person up and trans and get them to transcend so the music transcends to a degree to another degree if you got a temperature of 102 you got a temperature of 102 <laughs> <laughs> no i'm serious i, I know mean, i know, know, it, I takes, know. it takes more than one per i mean it, it takes everybody clicking together for it to happen um and, you know, who knows? I mean, the guy could have had 
three breakdowns in his car on the way to the gig. And so it's just never going to come together for him that night, you know, or me, you know, stuff happens in the course of a day that can ruin the evening. Um, but when it comes together, it's a wonderful thing. It's very, very special. And for me, some part of it is the willingness and the ability of all the individuals to sacrifice for the whole, to make the whole greater um, than the sum of its parts. Um, and those are special kind of musicians. Those are the only kinds of musicians, quite frankly, that I'm interested in playing with. People who understand the mission of being in a band is to make the band greater than the sum of its parts. I don't know. Am I talking gibberish? Or um, no, you're a lawyer. You're, 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 you're riffing really hard right now. I love it. Um, <laughs> uh, when, can you talk about um, your relationship, uh, musical and personal, with uh, uh, Robert Hunter? Oh, Bob is an old friend. Um, there was a time when I was going back and forth from London, actually before that even, um, where Bob was living in London with his first wife. And um, I was poor and just signed with a, a British recording label and uh, staying at Hunter's house mostly. And, you know, we were playing together a lot. Uh, he's a really wonderful guy. Um, one of the great intellects in, in, in rock music, I think. Um, and I think we had a friendship that was really special on, on, uh, some levels for whatever reason, our life paths have fallen away from each other. But when we see each other, we instantly spend hours together and it's, and it's a great thing. Did, did you, um, you you collaborated with him quite a bit uh, on his, some of his albums. Obviously, you were in the Dinosaurs together, but can you talk about um, the intellect that he brought? Uh, to, I mean, I, I was listening to, I, I saw this hysterical uh, video on YouTube of David LaFlame interviewing you and Bob Hunter, and uh, LaFlame was like, well, you know, without Bob, you know, the Grateful Dead would probably be still singing Good Lovin' or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I mean, partly it's you know, it, it, they're, they're, that's not an exaggeration. I mean, I, I think that from my peers who uh, love that, love his tales. I mean, did you? Can you can you talk a little bit about his intellect and what he how he infused that into the music? Well, more than intellect, Bob. Um, in all the years I've known him, um, is a committed writer. And in order to be a committed writer, you have to sit down and write every day. And as long as I've known Bob, he's had that, that commitment. He's willing to wake up in the morning, sit down in front of the blank page, and do something new. Um, and takes it very seriously as, as a job, you know. If you're really going to be a writer, you really have to write all the time five days a week, whether you feel the muse on your shoulder or not. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, I don't know what Bob's ratio is of trash to, to not trash or what 
what's great that, you know, um, my friend Mickey Hart used to have a, and he probably still does a little sign in a studio that says, uh, record more than your race. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and there's a, you know, I mean, we're all self-censoring, um, and it's hard to know whether you've thrown your greatest work in the trash can, and the trash man has already come and picked it up, you know? I know. Um, I know. I did that with Chico Hamilton. <laughs> I feel that I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. I mean, I, I know exactly what you're saying, but um, it almost, uh, I, I just, he, he's such a, it was just to see the two of you in that video chuckling. I mean, it wasn't even, it just, you could tell you guys were, you know, just very fond of each other. Um, what what British label are you referring to, by the way, that you were signed to? Uh, I was signed to United Artists in London. And um, what year was this? 1974, maybe. Wow. 70, or is that too early? No, I think it's around like 1974. I was going in and out of London. I was doing six weeks in, six weeks home in San Francisco. I was on a, and I did that for a couple of years where I was over in London. Well, not necessarily London, but the United Kingdom and the continent. And then out for six weeks and then home for six weeks, back and forth. Um, could you years. Could you talk about, I mean, you, you've been a band leader. Uh, the, one of the L's on my show is leadership. And uh, I feel like we're living through a, a time in our society in general where there's just not a lot of authentic leadership. And I wanted you to talk to the audience about um, a couple of intangible leadership qualities that you think are extremely important, not just in a band, but if you want to raise your family, if you want to cultivate a friendship. And as a subset to that, can you talk about uh, a cat that you might have seen early on in your career that exhibited some unorthodox leadership tendencies that inspired you. Yeah, I, and I can talk about it too in the sense that I was a, a, a county public defender. I, you know, I had an office where uh, I had uh, twenty-five lawyers working for me, investigators and secretaries and so forth. You know, in a, in a more traditional setting. So I've, you know, I've done leadership in in the uh, in the public defender end of things, and also in the musical end of things. And I think the most important thing that you can do as a leader is let people do their best and stay out of their way. <laughs> you know. Um, and 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 step back, I think is is an incredibly you know you talk about Miles Davis not engaging with Coltrane when Coltrane was asking him what to do, mm -hmm. and that sounds like an incredible leadership lesson by Miles Davis. I mean, part of it is is you know your job up there on a stage leading a band is to facilitate the best performance out of each of the band members. Um, and then you, you add your part, but I think in a way the leader is the most circumspect person about what they're adding because 
if you're doing it the right way, you've let everybody contribute before you contribute. Exactly. Everybody else goes first. Did you can um, you can you say that they're in your public defender career, uh, <coughs> or or even in, in the in your? I mean, I just want you to talk to the audience about how long it took you to feel comfortable and secure enough to allow people to express themselves. Oh, it takes a while. Yeah, and I wasn't all that good at it as a kid. Um, That's the Barry Melton. I want to see video of that Barry Melton. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, it does take a while. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I was a young, impetuous kid. I was anxious to get put myself out there. Although I must tell you that one of the things unique, I believe, to the San Francisco art form, musical art form of my time was, and, and one of the sensibilities of the whole um, hippie psychedelic movement was um, letting your ego go. Um, and, and, and sacrificing yourself for the whole, you know, great music and great musicians are people who get up there and they're selfless. They understand that the job of a, of a good musician is to listen and play only as much as is necessary in the configuration that you're in. Um, and the musicians I want to play with are the musicians who are the great listeners, who are not interested in pushing themselves. They're interested in being part of something that's bigger than themselves. And that's the leadership quality. Right, exactly. You know? Yeah. Can you can you can you uh, uh, point to a couple of cats like I mean that that in your in your music? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a, a bevy of them, but guys that you still love to play with because they're always listening well you know i played with uh peter albin who plays bass with me now for over 50 years now wow um, that's awesome uh peter was in big brother in the holding company he's just he's just um he's like my brother up there i mean you know when i look around you know and see him back there there's something like incredibly comforting about seeing peter up there um, you know, Banana, who I play with, uh, you, you know, my band now is all guys who are in those old bands that you talk about. Um, well, but Peter, you, you know, all those guys are willing to, um, willing to take the lead when the, when it's appropriate and they're willing to, um, do their best at backing up whoever may be taking the lead. Uh, when that's happening, I mean, you need to be both a leader and a follower. Any any leader, I mean, the best leader is also the best follower. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think it. I think you're, well. I mean, you could extrapolate on it, but I think that um, I think it would go over a lot of people's heads today, uh, in, in not just in this country but in the world. I, I don't think they'd understand it. I think if you, I mean, if you could flesh out how to be a how being a good leader includes being a follower. That would be great. Oh, absolutely. When you're bringing out the best in people, you're not only dragging them along, you're pushing them forward. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And probably the most valuable leadership quality is pushing others forward so that you're getting the best out of your team. 
Um, and that's, we see that, you know, on sports teams all the time. A truly great sports team is a, is a team of support personnel who know how to provide support and they know how to receive support. Um, and no, that's the greatest leadership quality is the, the quality that provides the support to others in whatever they're doing and makes the people on the stage with you the best they can be. And the music and, and, and the players have to subjugate themselves to the music. It's the music that we're there for, not ourselves. I'm going to save the other two L's for part two, uh, Barry. But before we wrap up here, um, one way that I support my family is by selling lots of records on eBay. And I need you to um, enlighten me about something. I found an, an album here that I bought for 25 cents. I sold it for $185. Oh, my God. It includes John Cipollina, Barry Melton, um, Mickey Hart. It is a 45 on Nasty Records called Teacher. It is one of the raunchiest albums I have ever heard, and I am much richer for it. Can you talk about that album? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, it's a 45 on Nasty. It says, ultra-rare, early 70s original pressing of a dirty X-ray. I heard you, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Does it have Mickey Hart's name on it? No, but... Does it have John Cipollino's name on it? Well, I guess somebody was smart enough not to put names on it, but there's enough information. I just, you know, if, if, you, uh, if you don't want to do it, if you don't want to get it... I into... deny any involvement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Um, As would any... First of all, Cipollino doesn't have to deny it because he's been dead for 25 years, but uh, nobody... nobody I don't know any of those people who were on that record, and I don't even know about that record. I'm not sure I've ever even heard it. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I, if I ever find another copy of it, I'll make sure to send it to you. Um, there's oh, okay. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, some some Melton esque noodling going on there, and uh, it's got. Oh, you got to be kidding me! Yeah, mm. you're probably mistaking me for Cipollino. A lot of people did, other than the fact that he was skinny and I'm not. That's just one of those things that I'll just have to keep digging deeper on. But, um, uh, Barry, I just, you know, we cooked for about, with the exception of the drop calls, uh, we just went for about 75 minutes here. I, I really enjoyed it, man. And, um, and, uh, so do you end up editing this down or are we on live? I never did figure that out. We are, at, we are, we've been live, uh, we're live worldwide right now. I'm going to go home and edit the puppy down and then I'll email you a full link of the thing and I'll be transcribing a ton of stories from it as well. So, um, but I, I, I'm really happy to connect with you. I hope you really, I really had, I had a ball, man. Okay. Well, thank you, Jake. Uh, it's been wonderful. Um, I didn't want to end on a nasty note, so to speak. No, no, there's nothing, there's nothing nasty to it. I mean, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, I mean, all right. For me, for me, it was uh, it was one hundred and eighty dollars for my family. You know, I hey, so, I sold now that. you're talking. Yeah, so uh, uh, we'll be in touch, Bear, and uh, and and thank you for being part of the program, brother. Yeah, take care, Jake. All right, now, bye bye, bye bye. We'll be right back on the Jake Feinberg Show.
Oh, my God. 